I remember hearing one guy talk about kids, and he was a guy that I sat down and like all five of his kids turned out to be these kids that like, man, you want those to be your kids. And I said, man, what did you do in their life? Like, what was it that you got five of them, man? It's like, I'd be happy with one out of five. And, um, and he goes, you know, one of the things I did is I constantly reminded them God is good. God is good. And anytime God did good things in their life, he would constantly sit down with his kids and they, they, would, they would build, he called it an altar. They wouldn't literally build an altar, but it was an Old Testament thing. He'd learned that anytime God would do something good, he would always ask them to build an altar. Because he wanted to remind him over and over and over, God is good, God is good, God is good. And, and the neat part about doing what we did in the homes was, in, a, in kind of a special way, you get to work with these kids and almost like they remember that house. That's the house where this happened. And every, anytime you go by it, because you know this, like there's certain sights and, and smells like that, that you'll see that reminds you, oh yeah. And they learned that was a place, God is good, God is good, God is good. Because one of the things that God always wanted to teach people was not only was he good in the past, but he, he wanted them to look back on that to remind them he's going to be good in the future. I mean, it, it's, it's reminded to me over and over and over that every time I question whether or not God's going to be good, he always comes through. Even at the most bleak times and through the Old Testament, that's why he wanted them to point to those altars that they built in the Old Testament and say, oh, yeah, God's good, God's good, God's good. And one of the things that I personally do, I'm a journaler. I read a ton and I journal a lot. And um, one of the things that I journaled back in, uh, I think it was April, May, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. We had sat down and kind of prayed through what was God wanting us to do with the money that he blessed all of you with. And then you chose to give to us to kind of decide where things get dispersed and... Um, I remember sitting down with the rest of the elders just saying, you know what, we need to give and we need to uniquely give in loving our neighbor as ourself. And so what we decided to do is a lot of, you know, we decided, okay, for every penny we spend on ourselves here at Cornerstone, we're going to give a penny away. And so we started this whole 50 50 thing. And in my journal, I mean, I wrote in there, I still remember this is one of the stupidest things I've ever done that I think is so right and I just, I knew it was right, but at the same time, I thought, gosh, what are we doing? I'm looking at my job as executive pastors to make sure operationally we keep going, that ministry doesn't fall through the cracks. And, and I just remember right now, God, if you do this, it's going to be a miracle. And um, so right before I left for Uganda, I sat down with uh, the finance people and I said, where are we at? And uh, they said, well, you know, we're probably going to, they projected out for me and they said, you know, probably we're going to be about... 350 or so thousand short of making the 50-50 thing. And I'm like, oh, great. So I created quickly the Todd Nicewanger Fund, and we're going to give to that. But um, I'm just kidding. Um, so I was just really praying, God, man, surprise us. And so this week I came back from speaking, and I said, okay, where are we at? Because if we need to do this, we need to do it. And Vanessa gave me a printout. She goes, Todd, you wouldn't believe it. We're only about $40,000 short. And I'm like, okay, 40,000 is much more reasonable than 350. And then I was sitting last night. One of our foster kids had a birthday last night. We're sitting around, you know, Andrew, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Do you know the birthday song's 149 years old? You remember when it was written? <laughs> you had that teacher. Anyway, but I was just, um, I was sitting down and, and Tim Hardy, who's our global ministry pastor, I, I told him, man, we're only 40,000 short. And he goes, well, that's okay. He goes, 
Because I have to disperse a little over $30,000 just out and about to different ministries. We promise money like Myanmar, CHF, some different things. And so ultimately, when it comes down to it, at the end of the year, we've, God has blessed us in such a way, even in spite of an economic downturn. I know some of you have had just some rough things go on as far as jobs and different things. But God has made it so, in spite of everything, we're going to be able to give 50-50 this year, right on the nose. So that is just an absolute praise to God. So. <clears throat> the good part about it, I was looking down for local giving, which includes like uh, benevolence, uh, money that goes to prison ministry, church plants, local missions, uh, our Spanish-speaking ministry. Um, we're going to be able to give uh, this year probably right around $1.3 million dollars. Um, was just you think about it, 1.3 million. That's a lot of money. And then on a global level, which includes that one million dollars that we gave to uh, CHF, um, we're going to be able to give this year about 1.9 million. And it's just like, and then I, I, I'm sat down with, I'm going to sit down with my staff this week. I sat down with them. I go, I don't know how we're going to make it, but we've got to figure out how to do more ministry for less money. And I sat down and I was the coach, raw run, and, and, and with the staff. And man, they brought costs down so that we were able to give more. And so literally all I'm saying in all that is God has been so good. We're finishing this year our debt to equity ratio. We are, with all of our money markets and everything, we have more money there with checking accounts than we do have debt. I mean, it's just like, I never, I thought for sure I was going to be standing up here at the end of the year looking at all of you going... <laughs> Give more money. We're going to die. You know, and I'm looking at you going, man, thank you. Thank you for believing so much in what God's doing, not only locally, but around the world. Thank you for sacrificing. I know that um, some of you gave out of your excess and thank you. But I know some of you really did give up out of your poverty. I know it was a rough year. And but man, to hear all the stories coming back in of what God's done as we've dispersed money. I mean, we're already starting to get little trickling back of stories of money that went to Myanmar. So hopefully we'll be able to tell you more about that. But uh, thank you. And if, as you get time this week, just thank God. I mean, that is just, that was such a huge praise to be able to do that. And I don't, I'm not going to build an altar here in front of you. And, and But uh, it's something that I journaled the other night going, God, thanks. Thanks so much. And And, and uniquely... The other part of doing things is that Jesus Christ, when he left, he knew we would forget these things. He knew we were going to forget how good he is. He just, God's God and he's smart. And so he knew it. And so one of the things that, that there's two issues that are two things that he left for us. He left number one, baptism. He left the picture of baptism for us to remind us of how good he is. And he, he asked us to do it anytime we enter into this family, into this group of people called Christians. Is that first of all, we, we get baptized because we follow the example of Christ. And he had a unique baptism. But he said, look, everyone after me, I want you to baptize. It's adjoining me in my death, burial, and also resurrection. And I want you to do that. Now, one of the things that, that, that kind of sometimes disheartens me is I know at the end of the service, uh, when somebody's getting baptized every once in a while, I'll see a few people leave. Let me just tell you something. As our family, you don't leave. That's like if all of a sudden you're a dad and your wife goes into labor and you bail. You know, it's like, no, like we're coming, we're having a group of people coming up and saying, I am going to, in front of all of you, tell God, all of you, my family, my world, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And in a unique way, that's how that person says, I'm a part of this family. So in the future, could I just ask as a pastor, don't leave. Like we're joining, we're having somebody join into our fellowship, join us in, in fulfilling what God's called us to do. 
The second thing is the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about that today. The Lord's Supper is so distinct in that it's not something that I'm called to do just one time. Baptism is this one time thing where I stand in front of all of you and I do it one time. Now, this is the thing that God has given to us where he says, remember, remember how good I am. Remember how good I am. Remember that I'm not just good in the past, but I will be good in the future and I will be good to you right now. And one of the things that I was thinking about was, though, is I was speaking at a camp and we uh, this one guy did this talk with these students on the Passover. And he's walking them through the Passover and what it was about. And, and, and he was talking with these students through how unique it was to the Jewish culture, to the Israelites at that time. And he said, you know, the amazing part about it was is all these people would come from all over the world and they would come and they would they would enter into Jerusalem and they would gather with family. And one of the unique things that they would do is they would grab a lamb and they would kill that lamb. And so all of a sudden, when he said that, these guys brought out all these tarps and this guy came out from the side holding a lamb. And all these kids it's just silent in the room. And I hear this one kid. Are they going to kill that thing? And all these kids literally thought, and then he grabbed the knife and he goes, they, they would grab a knife just like this one. And all these kids are in there. Their eyes are like this. Now, why? Because most of those kids grew up in Kansas City, Omaha. Um, they grew up where there's no dead things. You know, there's no, they don't watch anything die. And so the guy walked up and he said, and then they would go and he would, and he pulled the snout of the, of the uh, lamb up and he put the knife up and you just, it was like, <clears throat> And then he goes, but we don't do that anymore. And he pulled the knife away and all these people went, oh, you know, this is this total thing where everybody just breathed. And, but he wanted to make a point. And then he looks at him and he goes, the sad part was, is the Jews at that time had just caught and caught up in the ritual. All this blood everywhere. In fact, they literally created drainage systems all throughout Jerusalem because they were sacrificing so many animals and blood was was pouring out. And and, and literally it kind of became like our Thanksgiving a little bit. It was still a very, very special holiday to them. But it it was unique in that that pretty soon after a while, it was just kind of like, uh. And into this holiday, Jesus Christ came. Right before his death, in fact, they'd all gathered in Jerusalem. They were going to celebrate the Passover. And he gathers all the guys around him. And in the midst of the Passover, probably somewhere before the third cup of the Passover, Jesus Christ grabbed a loaf of bread and looked at him and he said, this is my body. And he talked about his suffering. And he talked about the fact that that this body uniquely was going to be bruised for them. And then right at the third cup, he grabs the cup and he looked at all the guys that were in there and he just said, you know what? This, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant that's going to be shed for you. Now, the sad thing about this is here's Jesus pouring out his heart. He just finished washing their feet in John 13. He talked about servanthood and here he is. In fact, in Luke 22, he says, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this with you. This earnestly desired means I couldn't wait for it. I was pulling you guys together. And then right after he finishes in Luke 22, it says they started arguing about who's the greatest. Meaning they missed the point. But the thing I was trying to imagine Can you imagine the first time after Jesus Christ has left and there's Peter standing in front of all the believers? The first time he holds up that bread and stands in front of him after he'd seen Jesus Christ being beaten 
after he'd seen Jesus Christ with that robe and carrying his cross up to the hill, and after he saw Jesus Christ laid across, stretched across that cross, and, and the nails uniquely pounded and him being beaten and all the different things that come along with it, and then he looked out at those guys and he's holding that loaf and his bread, I promise you it meant something different to him. When he looked at it and said, it's no longer a future event, he's saying this represents Jesus' body. And then he holds up the cup in front of all these people. Maybe there's 120 left. We don't know because it's not recorded in Scripture. But he talked about this blood of the new covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And I'm just imagining Peter, whoever is trying to do it, just trying to even hold in tears as they remembered what happened with Jesus Christ. And somewhere in there, the church kind of started going through all this. And we know about 20 years later, a little over 20 years later, a church in Corinth that Paul had helped plant forgot why they were doing the Lord's Supper. They forgot the significance. They forgot what it was about. And in forgetting what it was about, they forgot then that this reminder was there to remind them, God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. That's why he says, as often as you take, we're we're supposed to be doing this on a regular basis because we're supposed to, no matter where we are, whether it's in this gathering, another gathering of worship, God is good. God is good. God is good. And Paul, when he's writing to these people in Corinth, and you can go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> he'd been fighting this unique battle through this letter that he's going to address as far as what the Lord's Supper is concerned. See, in 1 Corinthians, there's a, an underlying theme that's going to follow this through. And we're going to walk through this today. It's kind of a, a thread that weaves all the way through 1 Corinthians that a lot of times people miss. This is a, it's, it's a very important thread. And this is the thread. Whatever happens in your life... Do not hinder the gospel. Whatever happens in your life, do not hinder the gospel. And everyone that's ever had me for 1 Corinthians at EBC knows I hammer this and I hammer it and I hammer it to the point where nobody leaves my class without understanding. Don't hinder the gospel. See, right off the bat in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, look, you guys are you're, you're having fractions within the church. You're fracturing into all these different people. One of you is following me and one of you is following Cephas and one of you is following Apollos. And then there's the Jesus party. Some of you are following off on that. And he says, the problem with that is, is he says later on in chapter three, Paul says, was I crucified? Why are you treating me like that? See, and and if you want to understand the book of first Corinthians, just look around us in the American culture. In fact, look in the American church. Don't we love our authors and speakers? Oh boy, John Piper. I enjoy John Piper, but John Piper didn't die for me. Beth Moore, great job, but Beth Moore didn't die for me. But we love our people to follow. Francis Chan, he walks on water. No, he didn't die for you either. See, Paul understood that when we start following people, we take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. And then we go off in all these little fragments. And then it's, it's unique inside of the, the kind of the, I don't know, churchdom or whatever it is. That we follow Mennonites, follow Menno. Wesleyans follow Wesley. Lutherans follow Luther. It's like, no. Luther didn't die for us. Jesus died for us. He gets to chapter 5 and he lays out this whole idea of not hindering the gospel. There was a guy that was sleeping around with his stepmother. And Paul says, what are you doing? He goes, the kid and sleeping around with his stepmother is bad, but you not dealing with him is worse. 
You need to take that young man and you need to kick him out and turn him over to Satan, he says, in the hopes that you'll save him, but that the church will not lose its dynamic in pushing forward the gospel. He said, by leaving that young man in there, you're hindering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, he brings in this whole idea of, of, of believers suing each other. Paul goes, what? Believers don't sue each other. Why in the world would you take your trash in front of unbelievers? Because unbelievers are going to see this and think, man, this is what Christians are. He said, no, bring it to believers because one day believers are even going to judge angels. Trust them with it. They've got the Holy Spirit inside of them. Don't do that. You're hindering the gospel. Also in chapter six, he talks about sexual immorality and he talks about the fact that our body literally is the house, a temple for the Holy Spirit. We don't mess with this temple. And he says, the problem is, though, by you taking and joining your body with a, he, in sexual immorality, he uses the word prostitute, but by joining yourself in sexual immorality, you are now dragging the Holy Spirit into it with you. And not only that, but Christians, that, that, that conveys a wrong message of the gospel. Now, chapter seven, I love. It says this. There are some of you in this room that should get married because in getting married, you will advance the gospel more effectively. I should get married. Now, some people say, yeah, it's better to marry to burn. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about this whole idea. I am, I'm like Laurie Steinfeld. I am like chaos on Ritalin. I need to be on there. And Ritalin is my wife. She slows me down. She has this phenomenal ability to help us push the gospel forward. In other words, I needed a partner to push the gospel forward. I needed to get married. But there's some of you in this room that God's going to uniquely call to be single. Because some of you can advance the gospel more effectively in a single state. That's the best way for you to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the funniest question I ask whenever somebody comes into me for marital counseling or for premarital counseling, I always look at them and I go, so why should you get married? It's so funny. You know, usually the guy's afraid to answer it because he doesn't want to look stupid. And so, the, you know, the girl will sit there and she'll go, because we love each other. You know, it's just like, it never fails. Ah, we want to live together and be old and have children and grandchildren, you know, and they're just talking through all this stuff and, and they miss the point. We don't get married for that. That's phenomenal stuff. We get married as Christians. We join with another brother or sister in Christ to advance the gospel. That's why we get married. Some of you, it's just like I just killed the love in your life. No, I don't mean it that way either because I now love my wife more because she's my partner in crime, right? She's this person that's joined me and now together we're just pulling with everything we can to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, the underlying theme of that, he starts off this idea with, with the fact that, that there's some of these people that were eating food sacrificed to idols. And in eating food sacrificed to idols, there were some that, that, that used, came out of this idolatry and they saw them eating these food sacrificed to idols and, and they were confused and it, and it was causing dissension within. And, and Paul says, look, if you need to not eat food sacrificed to idols, stop because that is hindering the gospel going forward. He says, in fact, in chapter 9, he uses himself in his illustration. Look, as an apostle, I could ask for money, but I'm not going to because I think the best way to advance the gospel in Corinth is for me to not ask money from you. In chapter 10, he talked about this whole idea that I always hear people say, yeah, but it's for freedom that Christ set me free. Yeah, but Paul also said, yeah, but use your freedom not to gratify the sinful nature, but uniquely to gratify God. 
And he talked about the Israelites going out in the wilderness and they got caught up in their things and the manna and all the stuff God was giving them and they missed God. And he said, that form of idolatry will cost you. At the end of chapter 10, he has this amazing verse, whether you eat or drink, no matter what you do, you do all to the glory of God. Why? Because when my life is situated where every, even every drink I take, every breath I take, every, um, no matter what I take, no matter what I bring into my life, if I always see that as gospel, 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 I'm going to have a life and a life unimaginable because it will be geared in such a way that God who designed me, who knows what's best for me, now will be able to use me to accomplish the most incredible thing he's pulling off on this planet. Chapter 11, he also talks about this whole idea of head coverings. <laughs> Whenever we get to head coverings in my class, there's always angry people. Usually it's not women. It talks about the fact that, that God says, look, I want women to wear head coverings. And usually women aren't mad. It's the men that get mad. I don't know what it is about them. The women are just like, eh, whatever. If I'll put a head covering on, whatever. The guys are like, no, you can't. And I have to deal with my wife if you say yes. But um, he doesn't say me to literally put a head covering on. The idea that he's talking about in chapter 11 is this. The greatest way to advance the gospel is when men are men and women are women. That's what he's talking about in that passage, actually. He talks about the whole idea of men shouldn't shave their heads. Now, that doesn't mean if in our culture, long hair is not a big deal. What he's talking about, though, is that the greatest way to advance the gospel is to live out who God created you to be. If you're a man, God created you to be a man. Be a man. If you're a woman, God created you to be a woman. Be a woman. That is the greatest way to advance the gospel. Chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. They were using tongues to make themselves happy. They thought tongues was a gift created somehow to be used for their personal gift. And Paul goes, baloney. God created every spiritual gift for the advancement of the gospel. Therefore, it's not for you. It's for the body. Chapter 15, oh, the resurrection. There's a group of people that thought the resurrection wasn't going to happen. And he goes, oh, you got to understand. Jesus is coming back. (laughs) Oh, he's coming back. And he's going to give you a whole body. In fact, by you believing there's no resurrection, you're actually saying Jesus never rose from the grave. And if Jesus never rose from the grave, then all of us are still in sin and we're facing an eternity apart from God. But nestled in there in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, is another way in which Paul wants us to understand, don't hinder the gospel. And in chapter, verse 17 of chapter 11, he says this. In the following directives, I give you no praise. For your meetings do more harm than good. (laughs) Great news. You all are hurting each other. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's like, I've got no good news for you because actually when you gather together, you are actually hurting one another. And then he's going to explain why. In verse 18. For in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, that word division, what it means, it's a, it's a Greek word schisma, or it's found in there as schismata. It literally means to rip and to tear apart at the bone and at the sinew and at the, at the, the tendons. Now, I'm not going to do this here because I used to be a youth pastor and I used to do dumb things. And now I've refined myself and become more mature. Um, but what I did when I taught through this in a different passage, this word to, to be division, I brought a chicken, a dead chicken up in front of him. And I held the chicken out and I said, you know what? Do you, want to sound what, do you want to hear what division sounds like? And I put a microphone right up in the chicken and I just started ripping apart that chicken. And I go, that is the sound of division. That's the closest thing I can help you understand. And it was just popping and 
I mean, it just had these terrible sounds to it. But I said, can you imagine if that's what division sounded like and we could actually hear it, how much of us would really want division within the church? Now, the word division literally means to be not of torn apart, but literally to be of the same mind, same goals, same directions. It's the idea of a relay team would be the opposite of it. In other words, if I'm running a relay, we all have the same goal as to win the prize. So in other words, in chapter 9, that's why Paul said, look, I keep my eyes focused. I'm moving towards this one direction. And all of us that are moving towards this direction, it has nothing to do with doctrinal issues. It has nothing to do with all the things we tend to make it. It means we're pushing towards the same goal. And he uniquely says in here, you guys aren't pushing towards the same goal. And in verse 19, he says, no doubt... There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, that one is so unique, and I never knew how that fit there. Now, what he's talking about is, is that there, it has to be there, is that somehow in there, God is going to weed out those that are truly his and those that aren't. See, there's something about those that love unity, that love the cause of God, that love so much to see God's purposes fulfilled, that they will gather unity for the purpose of fulfilling God's purposes. There's also those that get caught up in that would be more maybe possibly the Pharisees that love doctrine and love to study things and love to cause arguments and disagreements over stupid things. And and there were not that I I love doctrine. It's good. Um, But there's also people that uh, have you ever been to a prayer meeting where somebody gossips right before you pray? Oh, I don't really want to talk about it, but they need prayer. That person that loves to degrade somebody else in front of everybody and they try to pretend like it's spiritual all at the same time. See, what Paul is saying is, is that, look, this division kind of has to happen because that is how God is going to weed out those that truly love him and those that don't. And then he goes on and says this. When you come together, if that's the attitude you have, basically, is what he's saying, then you're not eating the Lord's Supper For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And now he's going to get really, really specific with them. Now, the issue isn't so much that God is now only dealing with a rich-poor issue. That does become something. And within a lot of churches and probably within ours, there is this idea of the rich-poor. See, at this time, what would happen, especially in a place like Corinth, who had a more established middle class, is that when the people would come together, they had to, the, the rich people always came first. The rich people came first because they didn't have to work. They had slaves and they had people that would go out in the fields and do the work for them. And so usually after lunchtime, the rich people would start gathering back and they would start meeting, including the Christians. Now, those that didn't have as much, the more poor, those that were out earning their living, not via uh, business or, or slaves, they were out plying their trade and they would come tired and hungry and they would come to the feast. The problem was this group of people could really care less about this group of people because Paul says, you start eating all the food. In fact, you start drinking the wine and some of you are even drunk. And he said, how can you do it to this group of people that's showing up, that's tired, that's hungry, and they show up to eat? And his whole point is, you don't really care about them, do you? Now, that could be any situation. It could be anything from, I mean, I appreciated so much the way that uh, uh, Yvonne was sharing about this whole idea. I don't really want to help out kids. See, I don't either. (laughs) Like little kids and me, we don't get along. That's why this parenting thing has been so good for me. 
Like I remember holding the first Jello kid in my hand, you know, it comes out and it's like the head sitting there going like this. And I'm like, oh, and then the first diaper. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, who wants to raise children? And then I hand them off to my wife. But it's just the kidding. But even as kids, she's I mean, it's just that side of it that what she was saying basically was, look, I didn't want to be there. It's any time we try to, in a unique way, say, I want my way. At the expense of the family, I want my way. And it could be anything. It can be music. Oh, boy, music is a hot button. See, there's some of you in here that will say, unless it's more contemporary, I'm not going to come to this church. It needs to be more of my style, my preference. And then there's some of you that will constantly say it's too loud. And then there's some of you that will do this. And some of you do that. And there's all these different things. Music is a hot button. There's all kinds of issues which this can cause. And what Paul is saying to us is unique is this. Listen close. That kind of thing cannot happen in God's church. See, Jesus died for me so that I don't really have to worry about me anymore. He died for me so that now all of a sudden I can look out just like he did when he came to earth and modeled servanthood. And I can understand, you know what, if I die, I'm going to heaven. So who cares? I'm going to serve. My dad will take care of me. He talks about in Matthew 6. He's going to take care of me with food that I need and shelter that I need. Therefore, I don't have to worry so much about me. Now, all of a sudden, I can begin to do something so unique. I can begin to take all of my energy that was devoted to me that the world is just self-consumed in. We love me. And I can start taking that off and going, oh, my gosh, I was designed for something bigger and better. See, if any group of people should not be caught up in meism, it's us in this room. Because we understand it's not about us, is it? All of us have read the Bible. At the very end, they're not going to be going, oh, Todd is so wonderful. They're not. When everything is said and done, all of us are going to be going, oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's about him. And Paul says that uniquely this group of people that organizes itself to fulfill its own desires and wants has missed the point. And therefore, when you gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not about the Lord. It's about you. So therefore, when we gather together, one of the things that we're going to need to talk about here for just a second is, is that when we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, everyone needs to understand that the one way you cannot enter into this room is saying, this is about me. And we're going to give you some time after the service to just sit down and examine your own heart on that particular issue. Now read with me, verse 23. For I see from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, for which, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Command, do it over and over and over is his idea. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's just two ideas. One is looking back and saying, man, I'm looking back at the cross. And every time I uniquely take this bread and this drink, I'm telling to everybody the cross, the cross, the cross. But I'm doing it over and over and over, though, until he returns to come back and get me. And then the whole major crux, kind of the the centerpiece of this whole thing, he says in verse 27. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? It's there for this purpose. He's looking back on everything he's just said. And he said, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, as your pastor, I want to talk to you and I please listen to me. This is so important that you listen to me. 
To take the bread and to take the cup is a highly, highly serious thing. It's something not to be messed with, which we're going to learn about later. Now, I was always taught growing up that I needed to just worry about myself. Todd, just worry about you, deal with you. And so, in other words, I would come in and before we took the Lord's Supper, I'd sit in my little chair and I'd be like, oh, crud, I sinned like crazy this week. Oh, dear Lord, please forgive me all my sins. And I'd sit there and just be paranoid because I did not want to take the cup in an unworthy manner. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain what it means to be this unworthy manner using everything he's just talked about. It had nothing to do with coming in and frantically confessing sin. He's saying, and he's building this case, that the unworthy manner in which we take it has to do with the way that we treat one another. See, I always thought it was just about me, me and God, me and God, me and God, me and God. And so I focused my whole life around me and God. And Paul comes in, he says, oh, no, it's not about just you. In fact, it's kind of almost weirdly arrogant to think me and God, me and God, me and God. That's like the kid, the only child syndrome. You know, that kid that's spoiled, rotten. See, it's, it was, it's bigger than that. And look what he says after that. He says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. That word examine means dakamazo. It, it, it literally means to test oneself, to look into deep within one's heart. And how he says it is, he says, look, I need to examine myself even before I get there, before I eat it, before I drink it. I need to examine myself on one issue. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body and the NIV includes of the Lord. It should not be there. It's not even in the Greek anywhere. It's, it was added much later. And so it should read this way. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. See that word up there of the Lord? That's not even supposed to be there. It's not in the Greek. The NIV decided to add it to, because they were trying to make an interpretational issue. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing, without acknowledging, without seeing the body and the purpose of the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what that means is this. To eat in an unworthy manner means to sit down and not care about anyone else but me. Right? Because the context, what's the context? Paul says, look, some of you weren't waiting. Some of you weren't thinking family. You were thinking only about yourselves. And as he builds this context, the whole idea is I can't just look back and say, oh, the cross, that's one aspect of it. Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. I can't believe you would envelop yourself in flesh and you would come and you would die for me. And I can't just look forward. I can't just look out and go, oh, man, God, thank you so much that one day you're going to call us home. And we're going to have this amazing feast of the lamb in which you're going to preside over it. And it's going to be the most incredible thing ever. But I also have to look around. And the whole idea is when I look around, I'm looking at a group of people, those of you that know Jesus Christ in here. I'm looking at a bunch of people that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, empowered to accomplish things beyond anything you could ever imagine. I look out at a group of people that once they were wrong with God, they were facing an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. And now I'm looking at a group of people that because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they uniquely now have a right standing with God. And not only that, but John says those who now believe are given the right to become children of God. Uniquely, you all that have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we're family. I don't care if you're a male or female. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care what race you are. I don't care anything about that because in God's eyes, he doesn't look at the external it talks about. He talks about the fact that he looks at what's on the heart. And uniquely now, it doesn't matter all this stuff because later on in the book of Revelation, it says he's going to gather together every tribe, tongue, and 
nation, this group of people that he's making a family. In other words, we're stuck together. We're family. It's looking around this room and going, oh my gosh, that person and that person and that person. It's looking at a guy like W and going, you know what? I am so excited he is here today to celebrate the Lord's Supper with me. Because number one, as I look at that man, the Holy Spirit indwells him deep within. is changing him, is making him different, is gifting him. And one day God is going to not only use him to accomplish stuff here, but he's going to call him home. And one day when we're sitting out at the Lamb's Feast, W's going to look at me and go, we made it. We're here. It's learning to look around and go, God didn't just die for me. He died for the world it talks about in the book of John. And Paul goes on and he says this. Verse 30. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, see, I used to think that was a personal thing. I used to think, oh, crud. I need to confess my sins because in confessing my sins, I need to deal with me for the purpose that I don't want to die. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get weak. Actually, the context, actually, that passage could mean that my sin could affect you. If you don't believe me, try being married to someone that's stressed. You become stressed. True? Have you ever been around somebody that's just stressed all the time? Oh, my goodness. One of the things that I did at this camp that I spoke at, there was this guy there that was just like, oh, my gosh. And finally, at one point, you guys know this. I'm not a hugger. I just said, come here, dude. And I gave him a hug and a noogie. And I said, you going to be all right? I go, because you're making my heart palpitate, man. Jeez. If you don't believe sin can hurt others, try a man that leaves his wife and leaves him with his kids. If you don't believe sin can hurt others, then you're lying to yourself. See, the sin that we do uniquely, it has this idea that, it, that the sin carries on and on. And that's why he goes on and he says this. But if we judged ourselves, if we, plural, judged ourselves, plural, we would not come under judgment. Plural. Now go with me to James 5. Let me show you what I mean by that. James does a great job of finishing up the book of James and kind of letting you know what does he mean by if we judge ourselves. Verse 19, James 5. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. See, we live in a culture that tells us, you know what? You do your thing. I'll do my thing. Just stay out of my business. It's none of your business. Well, let me tell all of you that are now a part of Cornerstone Community Church that call yourself believers that are part of the family of God. Your business is my business. And my business is your business. Because the Bible talks about that your goal once you came to Jesus was to advance the gospel with everything you are. My goal is to advance the gospel with everything we are. Therefore, this whole idea if we judged ourselves means that all of us are to be working together to rid sin from our lives. It's this this, this concept in which no matter what sin it is, it's not that I'm coming down and judging you and standing over you like the Pharisees did with people. But now I'm coming to you and saying, man... We've got to advance the gospel. And what's going on in your life right now is keeping us from advancing the most incredible message ever given to man. 
And in fact, the Bible talks about it with it. That is before I even come to that, I am supposed to deal with that brother. And in other words, I'm not supposed to come to the cup knowing that there might be sin out there. See, it's now not just dealing with me. See, I used to think it's just about me. But therefore, anyone in this room that I see that might be about ready to take the Lord's Supper, I'm supposed to walk up to you and say, please, we've got to deal with something, man. You've got sin in your life. I know you've got sin in your life. And I know by you taking that cup and taking that bread, not only are you putting yourself in danger, but you're putting our whole family in danger. If you don't believe that, read the book of, uh, read the Pentateuch and the whole issue of Achan. See, God doesn't just uniquely come after us individually. Sometimes, man, he'll let the sin pass on in unique ways to everyone that knows him. Now, should we be depressed? No, because look at the rest of it. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm so glad we don't have to leave depressed. Verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. See, the reason I really, I almost squashed my water. The reason that I really, really want you guys in my life, I want you to tell me when I have sin in my life, is because I want to know that the day that I stand in front of God, this whole thing's not a lie. See, there's a bunch of people that have somehow bought into this gospel, that somehow if I just mentally assent to a set of facts, that somehow that earns my way to heaven. But it's not that at all. See, when Jesus Christ comes into us, he doesn't just have us assent to a mental, mental uh, framework of thought. He says, I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to radically change you. And if there's no change in your life, the Bible talks about Hebrews 12, then you're an illegitimate child. You're not for real. See, I'm standing in front of you all now as a pastor looking at you and saying, you know what? I got great news. When God disciplines us, it is good. In Hebrews 12, it says in the Bible, it says God disciplines those he loves. And in fact, if you're not being disciplined in your life, (laughs) that means you may not have daddy. Right? Ever thought about that? In my sin, if I'm not being disciplined, in other words, if my sin is not being found out, there could be some inside of me that goes, "Uh uh-oh, I may not even be a child. And then he goes on and says this. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for each other. In other words, when you come together to eat, make sure that you're there to do family business. And then he goes on and says this. If someone's hungry, then he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I will give further directions. Now we're about ready to take the Lord's Supper together. And there's three things that I want you to remember. In fact, three things, just keep it embedded in your head anytime you come to take the Lord's Supper. Number one is this. Don't forget to look back. Man, look back at the cross and just be amazed at the gift of Jesus Christ, of Jesus coming and wrapping himself in flesh, being perfect God, perfect man, for the purpose of displaying God's glory, for the purpose of displaying God's grace and truth, for the purpose of uniquely carrying out that something only he could do, the perfect sacrifice, whereby which now through his death and burial and resurrection, all of us that know Jesus Christ are uniquely who we are because of his work. Don't forget one day he's going to call us home. And in calling us home, he's going to sit down and have the feast with us. He's going to celebrate. And in, in Luke 22, in fact, he says, look, I'm not going to, to take of the vine and I'm not going to eat this unique meal until I come back and pull you home into my father's kingdom. See, I can't wait for that day. 
Remember when you were a little kid and you knew the next day was Christmas? Do you remember that? Oh my goodness, I wouldn't sleep because I was so excited for what that next day looked like. See, the Lord's Supper is not only so that I look back and I'm just amazed at the, um, the gift of Jesus Christ and the cross and the empty tomb, but it's also to look forward. In fact, in, in, it talks about in 26, it says, look, I do this and do this. I, I remember that death and that work on the cross until he returns with an expectation. I set my hope fully on the grace to be brought. But here's the other thing. Look around. You got to look around. It's this whole idea that when we hold that bread in our hand and that cup in our hand, it's not just about the past and it's not just about the future. It's about right now. This is your family if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you know what? Not every family's perfect. <laughs> your family's not perfect. My family's not perfect. But this is our family. And the thing I'm going to ask, if there's any sin in anybody's life in here, deal with it today. Please do not come to the Lord's table without dealing with your sin. Also, please deal with it, not so that you just don't die, but deal with your sin because you're keeping us from advancing the gospel as effectively as we should. Please deal with your sin. Also, if you know that you've wronged somebody in this room, please do not take the Lord's table until you have gone to that person and said, I'm so sorry. In fact, husbands and wives, who knows? On the way here, you might have been... If you're like 50% of the people, you know, I mean, it's just like that whole thing. Get the kids ready. Shut up. I don't have to get you. You know, and you show up here, something like that. You know, husband, look over at your wife and say, I'm a moron. And then watch her as she agrees. But then wife, look back at your husband and just go, all right, I'm a moron too. And, and then, or I don't know, whatever women call themselves. Guys are morons. But they look over and then just say, man, please forgive me. You're forgiven. I mean, just walk through that. Please do not take the Lord's table if your marriage is wrong today without sitting down. In fact, who knows? You might actually start to enjoy your marriage if you walk through this process enough times. Parents and kids. Kids, if there's anyone in here that's not right with mom and dad, if there's sin that you've been hiding, if there's stuff that's going on in your life, whatever it is, lean over to mom and dad and just go, mom, dad, I need to talk to you. Man, I always used to be so afraid to tell my dad. My dad was like, you know, Mr. Farmer, rancher dude that was going to squeeze my head off with his kung fu grip, you know. And, and so I didn't tell my dad things. There's so much sin. I wish I would have just come to my dad and said, Dad, you know what? I'm a punk. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God, more importantly. You know what? Also, parents, though, you might have done something to your kids this week. I don't know. One of the greatest things I think a parent can do is humble themselves to the point to look at a kid and say, I'm sorry. You know what, mommy and daddy, you're sinners too. Please forgive me for what I did to you. If there's friendships in here that need to be mended. Man, one time I found out there was a guy sitting way back there and a person sitting way over here. They hadn't talked to each other for years, but they would show up and sit at opposite sides of this room. I cannot see God in heaven going, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Look at my children. No. If you're someone like that, don't take the Lord's Supper until you've found that person. If you need to make a phone call, you know what? You can use my phone if you don't have one. I don't care, unless it's super long distance. And then I don't have it on my phone. But I'll take you to a phone. All I'm saying is, it's now not just about making you right. It's also, if you know of anybody else in this room that you know is in sin, go search them out and say, you know what? I've been putting off this because I'm really arrogant and I'm afraid to tell you this, but you're in sin and I love you. 
And I love you enough to say, please don't take the Lord's Supper because I love the family actually as much as I love you. See, I don't want communion just to be about me. That's when we fail. The Lord's Supper is about Jesus Christ and about his family. And so I'm going to bring Matt and the worship team up and they're going to come up and they're going to walk you through looking back. And there's going to be songs that are just going to focus on looking back. There's going to be songs that are going to focus on looking forward. And there's going to then be a time where we're going to be able to look around. Now, I don't care if you look around. Like some people are like they're afraid to look at other people. Like the reason everybody loves to sit in here like this is because you don't have to look around and go, hey, hey, how you doing? I mean, we just, but like during the midst of, of, eat, of focusing on everyone around, I dare some of you to, even if you just take a peek and go, oh, yeah, brother, what's going on? And, hey, sister, I mean, I don't care. Just do something that demonstrates, oh, my gosh, I'm a part of an amazing family. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. They're going to bring around the cup and the bread. Please hold it. We're going to take it all together at the very end. Don't take it. Uh, I want to take it together. I want us to wait. We want to be obedient to the text. Let's just all wait together until everyone gets there. We walk through this. And then we're going to take it as one big group. But again, one last thing. I always say this, and I've gotten myself in trouble, but I don't care anymore. Do it with a smile on your face. You know what I'm saying? The reality of the past is I am right with God. I am right with the creator of the universe. I am no longer now in a position where I have to to cower. I am in awe of him and I am in wonder of him. But now uniquely the Bible says in Romans 8, I can call him daddy. I have a future. I've read the end. We win. Jesus is coming back. Smile about that. Satan is vanquished. I think that's part of one of the songs, right? It's okay to cheer during that. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the tree, it was nailed not just to put our sins, but to defeat Satan and everything about this sinful world. But also, I'll tell you what, I love our family. I love Cornerstone. As I travel around and I preached at two churches this little bit ago, oh my gosh, I couldn't wait to get home. Oh, this is my family. I can wait to stand in front of you and say, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a family and reflect back and, and look forward and look around at one another. We're all pulling on the same goal. I have never, ever preached at a church like Cornerstone. You have to be careful what you preach here because people might do it. Literally. I used to go to most churches and I have to preach like hyperbolic just to get them to like get out of their chair and go, hey, Jesus, you know. Here, man, I've got to be careful. If I say it, people will go, okay, I'll do it. I mean, it's just, it's a group of Peters in here. That's what I love about it. It's like, okay, whatever. Here we go. I love you guys. I honestly can say deep within my heart, a guy asked me while I was on uh, speaking at this camp, he goes, why do you love the church? I sat there for a little bit and I go, you know what? I don't know exactly. And all of a sudden it hit me. I love the church because Jesus loved the church. I love you. I don't love you anywhere near what Jesus loves you guys. We have such a good Savior. We've got a great Father. And as we come to celebrate, we come to celebrate with Daddy watching. With Daddy watching over his family. So make sure that we're right when we come to do it. Amen.